Thank you for tuning in to the Believer's Church of Johnson City podcast. We are grateful you stopped by. Regardless of where you are in your faith journey, we hope today's teaching is both challenging and also encourages you to move closer to Jesus. You can subscribe to the podcast if you want weekly messages, leave a review of your experience, and if you wish to become a giving partner, you can do so by visiting our website at believerschurchjc.com. And of course, we want to encourage you to come see us in person. We are located at 6110 Kingsport Highway in Johnson City, Tennessee. As always, we hope you enjoy today's message. Samuel Bringle, who is an early Salvation Army official, was once introduced as the great Dr. Bringle. He later wrote this in his diary. If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and it is of not me that the work is done. And this is my my favorite part of this entry from this diary. The axe cannot boast of the tree it is cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He, the woodsman, made it. He sharpened it and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only an old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Samuel Bringle is, of course, referring to the importance of humility. We're in part four of a four-week series titled Rhythm, the True Story of God's Grace. And we have introduced the concept of grace. That's what we did in week one. This amazing thing that we talk about and often abuse, this word grace, what exactly does it mean? And I don't know that we do have or ever will have the vocabulary to describe what this word means, but we did our best as we gave several analogies and talked about unmerited and unearned favor. We also discussed after that the next week that grace frees us from the past. A lot of times the guilt and the shame and the things that we have done and the reminders that we get from other people, when we feel like we're at our absolute best just out of nowhere, th- these thoughts and these feelings come back and com- can completely destroy where we are. And then we taught last week that if we can really understand this, that we are truly free, that grace can empower us and we can go forward in the grace of God and live in a completely new way. And today I want to discuss the relationship between grace and humility, because I don't think, and and it's hard to pack all of this into six weeks, but I don't think that we can really talk about grace without talking about humility. But as I was putting this together, a question that I had to consider, and I'm really still not certain I have the answer, is this. Does grace or humility come first? Which one actually comes 
first. We know that as sinners that the sin would come first and then that the grace is what redeems us and saves us through the blood of Jesus. But does grace or humility actually come first? It's kind of like the chicken and the egg argument. Are we broken by grace as a result of humility? Or does humility naturally lead us to grace? I don't know. I assume it could be both and work both ways. And this is a little bit of what James, we believe, was the brother of Jesus. We know that he had a brother named James, and we believe he wrote the book of James. So we're going to be in James chapter 4 today, and this should really excite the, the women's community groups that we have right now. I'm pretty sure because James is later in the book, it's a short letter, that they're probably not here yet, but they're going to get here soon. James chapter 4 is where we will be uh, today. James chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses four through 10, James has what I often call, and I say this about Proverbs, kind of scriptural ADD. And what I mean by that is if you read the Proverbs or you read James, one chapter and sometimes one section doesn't even really seem to all go together. It will skip and all of a sudden he's talking about a particular, he's talking about gossip, then he's talking about what it means to treat people a certain way, and then he's talking about how faith works with grace. It, it's a number of different things. He just kind of skips in a lot of different places, and this is what he's doing um, in this passage today, specifically, though, as we look at the importance of humility. So James chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. You unfaithful people. That's just a wonderful start to your morning. All right, so he starts out, you unfaithful people. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? He's trying to say that you can't have both. Or you just do you suppose that scripture is meaningless? Doesn't God long for our faithfulness in the life he has given to us? But he gives us more grace. This is going to be important in a little while when we talk about something that we often neglect which is sanctifying grace, meaning once we have accepted Christ, it doesn't stop there. We actually have grace to sustain us all throughout our lives. And this is one of the most amazing. It's not just amazing that God can save us from ourselves in the moment and then give us this ticket, so to speak, to heaven, but that we can live every single day of our lives through the difficulty, the struggles, the things that we go through with more and more grace. And it manifests itself in all these new ways. It's incredible. But what he is saying is that there is more grace that is offered. This is why it says, and he's talking about Proverbs 3.34, he's, he's, he's quoting the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. God stands against the proud but favors the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will run away from you. Or some of your, trans some of your translations say he will flee. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cry out in sorrow, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter become mourning and your joy become sadness. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift 
you up. James clearly shows that grace is experienced through choosing God over the world, which is important, and or choosing God but trying to have both. All right, so I'm going to say that again. Grace is experienced through choosing God over our ways or choosing God over choosing our ways over or trying to have both God and our ways, which is going to be referred to again as being double-minded. So this means that people who choose their own way do not experience this kind of humility. Instead, they experience their own effort throughout their lives. And often the pride that follows this with personal accomplishment and people who constantly try to have both And this is a lot of people that are in the church and a lot of people outside of the church. It's like, I want God's way and I want my way. And I believe that those two should be able to coexist. James is suggesting that this is a problem as well. So James writes that there is a way to channel humility and grace. And the relationship between these two, which I said, like like nothing else that we've talked about so far, tend to constantly feed off of one another. So there are three, this is the application part today that I want you to see. If we're going to understand this and we're going to be able to apply this to our lives, there are three things that James gives us that we have to be able to see. And the first is this, we have to be able to practice faithful submission. If you're going to experience the fullness of grace that channels humility or humility that then leads to grace, you must understand faithful submission. You must also resist the devil, which let's just be honest, sounds like archaic language in culture today. You know, if your friend is, I just don't know that I should, should date him. It's maybe not the best situation for me. He's doing all these things. And your, your, your weird Christian friend tells you, well, you need to resist the devil. Or you're like, what are you talking about? It's like that kind of language doesn't even exist today in culture, which is very scary. I believe it was Charles Baudelaire that said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There's a lot there. All right, we'll unpack unpack that another day. And then avoid sin. Easy as that. Just avoid sin. All right? uh, Practice faithful submission. Resist the devil avoid sin. This is how we channel both of this. All right, now listen, this is not something that we learn overnight. It's not something that whenever you leave here today to go have lunch, you're you're just going to be able to resist the devil, practice faithful submission all of a sudden, and avoid every bit of the sin in your life. But one thing that I've tried to teach you guys is that even though grace may be a sudden experience in a justifying moment, most of our faith life and our understanding of grace is a process. So what we're walking through with these three statements that James gives us is a process. It's not something that you are going to perfect overnight. But if you take this and you use this in your life, what you are going to recognize is that your relationships become better. And that a lot of the things in your life that seem messy or screwed up 
start to come together. And all of a sudden, things that you never could have imagined start to happen in your life. Why? Because grace is unfolding in your life. And this is the most significant thing that you will ever experience. So going back to this chicken and egg argument, what is something that all humble people within the church, and in the church I mean this in an extremely general way, have in common? They tend to be full of grace. Like you can tell that there is something different about them. And what do all grace-filled people have in common? They're humble. They're loving. They are servants. If a person is full of grace, they're never proud. They never neglect the poor. They never fail to acknowledge people that are hurting and struggling around them because so much grace has been poured into their lives and their experience that it becomes something contagious that is just poured on other people. Something I was thinking about on my drive here today is that you never have to push Jesus on people. And that's been the practice that so many of you have had and so many people have. You never in your life have to have those anxious moments where you push Jesus on people. If the spirit of grace is active within you, it pulls people toward Jesus. And this is the way that it's always going to work. But instead, we feel like we have to pull them in to follow our rules as we understand it. Hence the reason people hate church people. Did you guys know people hate church people? Let's, let's make sure that's clear before we go any further. Let's be real. All right? And the greatest reason is that they have no concept or understanding of what the grace of God is and what the grace of God does in the human heart. So if we're to understand this, we have uh, to channel grace and humility. We have to understand the practice of faithful submission. We have to understand first the practice of faithful submission. Uh, James 4, 7, the first part says this, submit to God. We, we hate that word. As autonomous 21st century Americans, I don't submit to anybody. My boss is only going to go so far in my life. My spouse is only going to go so far in my life. I am my own person. So I am not going to submit to anything. So whenever James talks about submitting to God, well, sure, I can have a relationship with God. I can have a friendship with God. I can have a distant kind of, I'll get along with God. But this idea of submission, the Greek word comes from what submission actually means in marriage. And when you marry someone for the good, the bad, or the ugly, biblically, spiritually, you are submitting to that person as that person is also mutually submitting to you. So the idea of subordination the idea of anything, not just God, but anything having control over us and our decisions tends to make us very, very uncomfortable, which is one of the reasons that we are not able to live within this active grace. So here's a misunderstanding that many people have had throughout time. And this is what the way that our soteriology or our view of salvation has been developed 
over time. They believe they needed God, or I'm sorry, they needed grace whenever they came to God, but they no longer need grace to sustain their lives every single day. So a lot of times whenever people do talk about their salvation story, or whenever people talk about the things that God has done in their lives, they often go back to this moment whenever they accepted Christ that could have been 35, 40 years ago, or they go back to one particular event, but they can't tell you about the grace that sustained them yesterday, or the grace that is sustaining them in this very moment as they go through a difficult time in their marriage because they're a jerk, or as they go through a difficult time raising their children, or as they are, they are living within the tension of trying to have a good relationship with a coworker that they can't stand. They don't understand what this submission looks like because they don't need grace today. They only needed grace to get them to heaven 15 to 20 years ago, or whatever that timeline might look like. Now, at this stage, just to get into a little bit of theology, you guys have heard me refer to myself as Wesleyan, or, or following the teachings of John Wesley. And the primary reason for that is because everything with Wesley is about grace. And he talks about what we call the doctrines of grace, or how is it that someone comes to know God? How is it that someone lives within this submission? There are three types of grace that we outline. There is provenient grace, or what we often call uh, proceeding grace, or grace that proceeds or comes before salvation. There is justifying grace, and there is sanctifying grace. And it's very important that you understand this because this is the way that God works. So there was a time in my total depravity in which I had no understanding of how good God was. I had no understanding in my condition as a sinner of what God could do or that God could love me. But at one particular period of time in my life, and for, for many of you in here, you're going to understand what this looked like because the same thing happened with you. God started to draw you in. You started to have questions. You started to recognize that maybe I don't have it all together. Maybe as good as I tried to be, there is some kind of missing piece. There is still a void. People don't come to God unless they first recognize this need. People don't come to God unless they have this understanding. So it's provenient grace that draws us in justifying grace is whenever we make the decision, again, as many of you have, I'm letting go. I cannot do it on my own. I recognize that at my best, I am still a sinner. And justifying grace, you could call this the moment of conversion. All right, this is the moment that we turn everything over and we are justified. And then there is sanctifying grace. And this is specifically what I'm talking about right now, this means that every single day, I pray, I've got this, this place, I, I, I pray every single morning on my way here in the Ingalls parking lot right down the road from here. Cora's been coming to church with me on Sunday mornings, and I was praying the other day. She said, what are you doing? 
She was in the backseat of the car. I said, I'm praying. She said, no, you're not. You're on your phone. Because usually whenever you, I'm like looking down like this, side story, but that's what she said. You're not praying. You're on your phone. Anyway, so I have this spot that I pray, and I'm like, God, I need your grace today in a completely fresh and in a completely new way. So it is through this practice of constant submission. It is through this practice of constantly turning things over. God, I do not know what's best for my life. And on my own, it's unmanageable. It is through this recognition that we must have the grace that gives us the ability to live humble lives. All right, but the second thing I want you to recognize is that we must also resist the devil. Again, something that is completely out of touch. Uh, the majority of people in society today, if you look at the statistics, heaven exists, hell does not. All right, God exists, Satan, some form of, of evil, an enemy, an adversary, uh, uh, does not. All right, that's the, that's the view that most people have. But this is what the passage tells us if we look at the entire verse in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Now, how do you do that? Resist the devil and he will run away from you. Or again, some of your translations say, resist the devil, and he will flee. It is often the power of influence and the enemy that eradicates humility from our lives. So the reason that the majority of people within the church that say they've experienced grace struggle with humility is because of the enemy. And it's because of specific sin. Now, I hit on this a little bit last week, but I just want to give you a personal example, as good of an example as I can, all right? Just, just to be honest. There are many times on a Monday that I will receive a message from someone, if not multiple messages, and say, we really enjoyed that sermon on Sunday. That was really good. That spoke to directly where I am. It's like God gave you that message directly for me, and I just appreciate it because we are going to work on restoring our marriage, or I am going to work on this particular area of my life, or I've never heard it said that way. You hear that enough, and you start to think, I must be pretty good. I must be all right. Things must be pretty good. I've had the opportunity the same morning to get a call from this, this church phone with families that are in need, people that are struggling, and been able to reach out and help. I must be doing some pretty good stuff. Guess I could add to that. I'm not only a decent preacher, but I'm also helping other people. Then all of a sudden, someone will reach out with a struggle in their marriage or a struggle with addiction. And you think to yourself sometimes, why in the world are they coming to me instead of a, a therapist or a social worker or someone that's more skilled? I must be doing pretty well. You want to know why that kind of thinking is so damaging and so dangerous? The same false God that builds your ego will send it crashing. When the sermon is bad, the people aren't reaching out, and the crowds are dying. The exact same scenario when everything is built upon our efforts. What was it that Dr. Bringle said? The axe cannot boast of the tree 
that it is cut down. It could do nothing. But for the woodsman, you ever seen an axe just dance around and do all the work itself? It's nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it, and you need constant sharpening. He used it. But the moment he sets it aside, it's just an old iron. And what is it that Dr. Bringle says when people are telling him he's wonderful for his contributions to a wonderful institution like the Salvation Army? Oh, that I may never lose sight of that. That I may never lose the recognition that at my core, I am a drunk who spent many Saturdays calling people and apologizing for things I had said the night before. That still to this day has things crossed my mind that I have no idea where they come from but can promise you that they're not healthy. A person who can blow his lid, sometimes using four-letter words that are not good four-letter words, at the drop of a hat. The person that sometimes, that told someone just the other day when we were talking, that when I smell sometimes in this crazy world that we're living in, hand sanitizer on my hands, I want to drink. May I never lose sight of that. There are individuals that have a difficult time as they continue to go forward identifying as alcoholics because they have lo- they have want to leave the past behind and live in the freedom of the new life. And I completely understand that. And I completely give, get that. But I'm a little bit different. And I say, God, let me never lose sight of the dark nights of the soul that I've walked through, the times in ministry I've been convinced that I was absolutely right, only to have to walk things back in embarrassment, the times I've rushed things, the times I've made mistakes. There is nothing that I could ever do to hold myself up. This may be difficult for some of you, and it's especially difficult for people who are outside of this faith. Because I know culture wants to tell you something different. You are nothing on your own. Nothing. I know that YouTube culture and a lot of the social sciences today want to pat you on the back through secular humanism and tell you how wonderful you are. But you can do all the good deeds. You can try to be the best spouse. You can try to be the best friend. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Lastly, we must avoid sin. We must avoid sin. Um, At some point, you have to recognize that sin is bad for you. I mean, that, that has to register. At some point, you have to recognition that there is a right way and that there is a wrong way. And sometimes those ways are a little bit confusing. But that sin is bad for you. James says this in verse 8. 
Come near to God, and he will come near to you. You know what that looks like? Not some super formal prayer, like like you're this deeply religious person. But, God, I'm messed up. I've got this bitterness inside that I've had since I was a kid. Some kind of childhood trauma I'm working at, and I don't know what to do with it. God, I have really, really hurt people. And there are some people that I know are never going to forgive me, despite what I say to them. And I don't know how to handle that guilt. I don't know how to handle that. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. With the double-minded, again, he's talking about the people who are trying to have both. We have God here. We have self here. So what does sin say? Sin says, as I was talking earlier, I'm sort of a big deal. Did you see what I just did? Did you see all those people I just helped? Let's post it on Facebook. Did you see all that? Make sure that I get the credit for the things that I have done. But it gets deeper. I don't need to forgive her. I don't need to serve him. I've been in church for 20 years. I helped start this place. I helped build this place. Our primary sin here that we're struggling with is pride. Consider our mission statement to help broken people become devoted followers of Jesus. A question for you to think about. Are broken people ever proud? No. They're not. Broken people tend to be in a place in which they recognize that they may have been proud a good period of their, their lives, but they're in a place where they recognize, I have exhausted all of these resources. Some people have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at relationships. I'm horrible as a friend. I'm horrible at a lot of different things. I don't know what to do next. And the great thing about these individuals is that they are in a perfect place. When we talk about provenient grace and God drawing them in, they're in the perfect place for transformation. And they're in the perfect place for change. You ever try to talk to a proud person about Jesus? You ever try to talk to someone whose portfolio looks perfect, who has everything they've ever wanted, that has a very difficult time admitting weakness, that thinks everything's perfect, everything's going well, they've established their views as it comes. You ever try to talk to a proud person about Jesus? They, they usually don't have much to contribute. They don't have much to add. Because the Spirit has not started working on them and showing them this brokenness that we're talking about. So we've talked about humility and grace and how to channel this in our lives. But what should we be able to say about ourselves if we're truly going to channel this? Some friends of my, uh, mine from Kentucky are here today. They may even remember this because this was at a Celebrate Recovery, a recovery meeting some time ago. Beth thought this was pretty funny as well. But one of my friends, Frankie Rice, uh, Frankie uh, got up that night, and and what you do in a recovery meeting, as we've discussed, is you'll say, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a 
alcoholic, I'm an addict, whatever it might be. It's kind of an acknowledgement. So Frankie gets up there and he says, I'm going to try to get this verbatim, but he says, my name is Frankie and I'm an addict. He said, I also struggle with telling the truth. I struggle in relationships. I struggle with Guys, I'm just a train wreck. <laughs> and that's what he said. And a lot of people started laughing, but he knew he could stand up there and talk all day about the issues that he had. So this is what I'm asking you to do. If you're truly ready to submit to God, if you're truly ready to resist the devil and resist sin and live into this, this is going to sound strange. Embrace your inner train wreck. Embrace it. Did you know the majority of us in here, we think we're okay. We're just a paycheck away from poverty. You're nothing. You can stand on your moral aptitudes and how wonderful you are all day. You are a broken creature. And the only thing that is going to make you whole is the blood of Jesus. I love Easter, and I love the weeks that lead up to Easter. This time off of social media, I've just been on there just a little bit, has restored my sanity to almost normal. It's been wonderful. But can you really embrace your inner train wreck? As some people listen to this, and some people sit here right now, no, I think I'm okay. I think, I think I'm doing all right. Train wreck, I got an issue. I don't think. Embrace what you are. In the grand scheme of things, you don't have it all together. I'm going to close today with a passage that, that God has really laid on my heart that is, that is one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. Luke might, be, Luke might have turned into my favorite gospel. Luke 18 9 through 14 is what I want to finish with today. And I want you to think about this as you leave it. In some of our groups tonight, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about this passage. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked upon everyone else with disgust. Hello, 20th and 21st century American church. Because this is where the majority of people are. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him. Or she needs to stop doing that. Do you see where she was going? Did you hear about what they were doing? So Jesus told this parable in certain pe about certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous. And who looked down on everyone else with disgust. This is the crowd that he's talking to. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, or the religious elite of the time, your typical church person, and the other was a tax collector. And some of you are thinking, tax collector, no big deal. A tax collector was the filth of society in the first century. Think, think white-collar criminal. Think abusive parent. Think pedophile. The absolute filth of society. 
in the eyes of other people. So one's a Pharisee and one is a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words. God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else. Can you imagine having the audacity to pray that? Thank you, God, that I'm not like everyone else. Crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or for that matter, even this tax collector right here as he's standing, you know, just a little bit further off. I fast twice a week, which Jews fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, Orthodox Jews. I give a tenth of everything that I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance, a distance because he didn't feel as if he could be close to this religious person. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest, which is a sign of repentance, and said, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. Show mercy on me, a train wreck. And then this is Jesus right here. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. Because all who lift themselves up will be brought low. And those who make themselves low will be lifted high. Jesus was like, Jesus was so punk rock. He was like, everything the establishment says we're going to do, I'm going to flip it upside down. I'm going to show you the kingdom. I'm going to show you a completely different way of viewing things. So while everyone else in here thinks they have it figured out, what danger we could be in. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. The question being, are we willing to admit what we are? And if we're willing to admit what we are, are we then able to reach out and be recipients of your grace? Father, we are nothing without you. And the truth is that in the 21st century, we are plagued by self-righteousness that continues to run people away from the goodness of God. Father, my prayer today is that you fill us with this grace and you sustain us exactly where we are. Father, if there are individuals that are in this room that are proud, Father, that do struggle with these realities, God, that you open their hearts and their eyes today to be receptive to the mercy and the truth and the living water that flows from the Son of God. 
We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to thank you again for listening to the Believer's Church podcast. Make sure you join us next week as we begin a new series. Also, we'd love a chance to connect with you. Make sure you visit BelieversChurchJC.com and enjoy the rest of your week.